Our passage for this morning is Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43. Uh, If you would, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles once again. That's Matthew 24. uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43. And let's begin this morning by reading this passage together. Matthew 13, 24 to 43. Matthew writes this. He, he, that's referring to Jesus, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed uh, weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. You can tell a lot about a person by what makes them impatient. A number of years ago, I worked as a waiter. And a waiter's job, of course, is not just to serve his customers food, but to make them happy, to help them have a pleasant dining experience. In fact, that's really the only way that you're going to earn any money as a waiter. It's by making your customers happy. A waiter or waitress makes their money off tips, and if you've ever ever worked as a waiter or waitress for very long, then you know that big tips come from happy customers. And by this, I don't just mean that you get big tips when your customers are happy with you. I mean you get big tips when they're happy, period. This is because when people are happy, they're just, they're just more liberal with their spending. When they're relaxed, they don't worry as much about spending money, and, and they're willing to open up their wallet or their pocketbook. Uh, even the stingiest tipper will still tip more when they're happy. 
So if you're trying to maximize your income as a waiter or waitress, then your goal when you approach a table is not only to convince your customers that you're doing a good job, that you're being attentive to them, you're actually just trying to put them in a good mood. You're trying to make them happy. You're trying to put them at ease, help them feel relaxed. Because when they feel at ease, when they feel relaxed, when they're happy, then generally speaking, at the end of your shift, you're going to be walking out the door with a few more dollar bills in your pocket than you would have otherwise. And to be fair, this isn't a bad thing. This isn't uh, deceptive or underhanded or anything like that. Presumably, that's what you want as a customer. You want to have a good time when you're out to eat. But, But what this means is that a good waiter or waitress, one who is working hard to make the most money that they can in the shortest amount of time possible, that waiter or waitress very quickly becomes a student of human behavior. Their goal from the moment you sit down is to make you as relaxed and as happy as they possibly can while bringing, you, while bringing you your food. And so they study people. And over the course of a thousand tables, they learn what makes different types of people happy. And they learn how to pick up on cues from the customer from the moment they sit down about what type of customer they are and what it's going to take to make them happy. By the time I stopped working as a waiter, I was still learning the tricks of the trade. I hadn't figured it all out yet. But I could watch a veteran server pull out twice the tip that I could from the exact same customer just a few days apart. And not because they were faster or more attentive or anything like that, but just because they knew how to work the customer better than me. They knew the tricks that made that customer happy better than I did. But I tried. I tried to get better at this. I I tried to become more observant, learn how to read people, and adjust my service to the type of customer I had. And as I tried to learn, it wasn't long before I observed the phenomenon of the extremely hungry customer. This is the type of customer who comes in on a Sunday afternoon in the middle of the post-church lunch rush. They've just sat through a long service that bled a few extra minutes over into lunchtime. They got to the restaurant later than normal and they had to wait 20 minutes then before the table was available for them. They sit down with three kids who are restless. They have a baby who is extremely hungry and and that baby's squirming and they're fussy. And quite honestly, the parents aren't much better off. You can read it on their face from the moment they sit down. It's in their shoulders. They're tired. They're irritated. And most of all, they're extremely impatient. When you, when you, uh, you, you learn very quickly that these tables are, are the very worst to walk up to at the beginning of a meal because you're already starting in the hole. And the first moment you walk up and say hello, they don't like you. They're mad at the pastor because he ran long in his message. They're mad at their kids for making so much noise. They're mad at their spouse for not doing a better job of getting the kids to stay quiet. They're mad at the restaurant for making them wait. And they're mad at you for being born and for being so cheerful about it. It's just a no-win situation. But then you watch as what I call the phenomenon of the hungry customer begins to unfold over the next 20, 25 minutes. You walk up and greet them with a smile, and at first they, they just snap off a drink order without even acknowledging that you said hello, that you exist, and you rush off to get their drink. When you come back, they're not ready to order yet because their kids had to go to the bathroom 
while you were gone. So they kind of huff that out at you, tell you to give them just a few more minutes and you leave and come back. By the time you come back, they're still angry, but a little less so. They make eye contact with you this time and they acknowledge you when you speak. You take their order, you bring their meal, and by the third or fourth time you stop by their table, they're starting to get in a good mood. They're not necessarily happy just yet, but they don't want to bite your head off anymore. You know, they might even, they might even take the time to have some polite conversation. By the time you drop the check off, it's even better. And if you're lucky, they may even give you a smile. It's a fascinating thing to watch. You get to see their demeanor completely transform over the course of a single meal. And when you watch this happen enough times, it's no secret what the cause of this phenomenon is. The real problem when they sat down wasn't their pastor or their kids or their spouse or even the restaurant. It was their empty stomachs. That was what was making them so irritable, so difficult to deal with. They had a desire that wasn't being met. They wanted food. And until you satisfied their desire, they were going to be impossible to make happy. So the goal with this type of customer, obviously, was just to get them something to eat as soon as possible. Bring their kids crackers when you walk up to the table to greet them. Bring their bread to the table with their drinks. Point is, just do whatever you have to do to get food in their stomachs as fast as you can and then slink out of there as fast as you can because before the, the, the more time uh, that they have to be fed and the less time that they have to be dissatisfied with you, the better tip you're going to get at the end of that table. Now, this meant that the key to dealing with this type of customer, clearly, was to determine as soon as possible that they were the extremely hungry customer. You had to figure out early what was the issue with them, because the clock was ticking. Every minute that passed without feeding them was an opportunity missed for a larger tip. So you had to figure this out right away, and I soon learned that the very best of all the indicators that could possibly reveal this type of customer was their impatience. You watch them take their seat, and if they're impatient with their family, then you're probably dealing with the hungry customer. If they're by themselves, and you come up to the table and they're short with you, you're dealing with the hungry customer. The problem isn't what you said, it isn't you, it's their stomach. So go and fill it as fast as you can. This is why I say that you can learn a lot about a person by what makes them impatient. That was a lesson that I learned while waiting tables. When a person is impatient, it's because they have a desire that isn't being satisfied. There's something that they want that they're not getting, and this manifests itself through their impatience. So if you meet an impatient person, you already know the situation. There's this incongruity between what they want and what they have, and it's not only up to you to fi- it's only up to you to figure out what that is, what they're impatient for. And of course, if you can figure that out, then you know what's driving their decision-making. I know that's what I was surprised to learn as I waited tables. I knew, I knew that we all liked food, that we even needed food. But I was amazed to see how quickly we will sin, how quickly we will even hurt those that we love just because of food. Just by being hungry for even a, a very short amount of time. James says it this way in James 4, 1-3. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
Again, what you are impatient about reveals a lot about you. It reveals what your wants are, what your desires are. It reveals your priorities, the things that you think are important. So with that in mind, what are you impatient for? What do you want to see happen right now? We're currently in Matthew 13. And in this chapter, Jesus responds to Israel's hardened rejection of his ministry in Matthew chapter 12 with a series of parables that are aimed at teaching his disciples about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Our passage for today is Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43. And in this passage, Jesus tells a total of three different parables. He begins the passage with the telling of the parable of the weeds in verses 24 to 30. And he then goes on to explain that parable in verses 36 to 43. But then nested in the middle of this parable and its explanation are these other two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, along with another statement explaining the purpose of Jesus' parables in verses 31 to 35. At first, this can seem like an odd kind of structure to separate the parable of the weeds from its explanation by inserting these two other parables in between. Uh, While the sequence itself isn't so hard to understand, uh, given that Jesus was proclaiming the parables publicly while offering explanations to his disciples in private, it's it's understandable why the the parable and the explanation separated in that sense. At the same time, it's hard to understand why Matthew would allow these parables to remain arranged that way. Matthew, you will recall, is very keen on rearranging the order of events in Jesus' ministry in order to better explain their meaning. He does nothing like that here. He keeps the parable of the weeds separated from its explanation, and this can seem odd to, to break up the parable in this way. Until, that is, you realize that all three parables in this section address the same issue, a fact which is preserved through the nesting of these middle two parables. These three parables all tell the same kind of story. They all address the same issue. And Matthew preserves this point by presenting them together as a package that must be opened up all at the same time. These parables share a joint theme. And that theme, as we will see both this week and next, is patience. Just like we saw with John the Baptist back in chapter 11, there was this expectation in Israel that once God had come to the nation, then the kingdom of God would be established shortly thereafter. And in this next set of parables, Jesus is going to use these parables to explain that the kingdom of heaven isn't going to come with the kind of speed that was so commonly expected. He comes out of this section in Matthew 11 and 12 where he explained that John could have been Elijah had the people repented and, and, uh, and to the, the, the message that both he and John demanded. He comes out of this section where Israel's rejection of this kingdom is even highlighted by their blasphemy of the Spirit. And he explains to his disciples that an aspect of the, of the kingdom that they hadn't ever understood before was this idea that it was going to be slow. They were going to have to wait. It wasn't going to burst onto the scene overnight. It was going to be a slow affair. This is new information. This is a characteristic of the, of the kingdom that was previously unknown. And what I think is perhaps most striking about these parables, as Jesus instructs His disciples about the need to patiently wait for the coming of the kingdom of heaven, 
is what it reveals about us. Through the things that we are impatient for. Or perhaps more precisely, through the things that we are not impatient for. What I want to do is split this section into two parts. The parable of the weeds being part one and the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven being the other. And I want to look at the first of those parts this week and then the second part next week. And the question that I want you to ask yourself as we explore these parables together is, what am I impatient for? What am I impatient for? Jesus is delivering these parables to instruct His disciples that they must be patient about certain aspects of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to ask yourself, Am I impatient for these things? Would Jesus have needed to share these parables with me if I had been one of His disciples? Or would I have been so unconcerned about the issues that these parables address that they would have fallen flat? That that I would have been even confused if Jesus would have told me these things without any sort of explanation? Let's go ahead and begin with the first parable and its explanation. Let's Read the telling of the parable of itself and the explanation one more time. Once again, that's Matthew thirteen twenty four to 43. The parable is told in verses 24 to 30, and then the explanation comes in verses 36 to 43. Let's read just those sections uh, one more time. Matthew says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the weed into my barn. Now verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Last week we explored the parable of the sower in verses 1 to 23 of this chapter. If you recall, in this parable Jesus spoke of a sower who went out to sow seeds which fell on various types of ground, which accepted the seed with varying degrees of success. These soils, of course, represented the various spiritual conditions that different people are in when they hear the gospel and how it affects their receptivity to the message. Essentially, the parable explained why some people accept the gospel and why others do not. And how to tell the difference between those who merely hear the message without accepting it and those who both hear and accept the message. In this parable, Jesus keeps the farming theme going. Again, talking about a farmer who goes and sows seed in his field. 
Though this time it would appear that it is not actually the farmer himself who is sowing the seed. Rather, he has workers, slaves actually, who go out and sow seed in the field for him. The farmer sows this wheat crop in verse 24, but then this crisis occurs in verse 25. An enemy comes in while his men are sleeping, which is to say that his enemy, this enemy sneaks into the field undetected while no one is watching, and he sows weeds in this field. More specifically, it would appear that he sows a specific kind of weed called a darnel weed. That's what the Greek word for this word weed indicates. This is not just any weed. These are darnel weeds. Darnel weeds produce a poisonous grain that could ruin the weed if they were mixed in with the rest of the crop. And not only that, but they were also known to carry a a fungus that was capable of attacking and damaging the wheat crop surrounding it. So again, this is not just some sort of random weed. This isn't just a relatively harmless grass seed or something that is being sowed just to stunt the growth of the wheat crop. This is a seed sown in in an attempt to attack and destroy the wheat crop. And what makes this weed so dangerous is that it actually would have looked very much like the wheat crop that it was sown to destroy until it started to bear fruit. So this is an especially clever and malicious enemy that is attacking this field. He has sown this seed knowing that it could set down roots and grow relatively undisturbed until it is it had grown mature enough to set roots down into the soil that would entangle with the roots of the crop and make it nearly impossible to remove without destroying the crop itself. And of course, by that point too, it would be too late in the growing season to to, to tear everything up and start over. This enemy knows what he's doing. He is attempting to utterly ruin this farmer by completely destroying his crop for the year. In verse 26, the wheat grows up and begins to produce grain. And it is at this time that the darnel finally starts to reveal itself. The weeds were there the whole time, but they only begin to demonstrate their true character in this growing process, later on in this growing process. So they go completely unnoticed until they've already begun to do their damage. They're there growing right under the farmer's servant's nose, but they're unobserved, indistinguishable from the wheat until it's already too late. Verse 27, the slaves become alarmed. They see this poisonous, dangerous weed springing up in their master's field, and at at first they're perplexed about how it happened. They ask the master how this good seed produced this poisonous crop. And the master knows what has happened. It might be possible that some weeds could spring up into his field, but for this vast amount of darnel to spring up right alongside his wheat when he had sown good seed, well, it's obvious that this is a deliberate act of sabotage. And he tells his servants that this is what has happened. This is not the fault of the master. There was not some error that he had performed in the selection of his seed. The fault lies with an enemy who is trying to undermine his estate. Having their answer, the slaves then move on to the next question, and they ask the farmer what he wants them to do about this weed. They suggest going out into the fields to pull the weed out. However, the master declines, realizing that this would only destroy the wheat in the process. 
Again, if the slaves were to go out this late in the growing season and pull out the weeds, they would only manage to pull out the weed as well. And, and not only that, but seeing as how this discussion is happening once the darnel has just begun to appear, then there's a good chance that there might be some wheat and darnel out there that had not yet begun to produce grain. And this might lead the slaves to pull weed out of the ground while mistaking it for darnel. Point is, to try to weed this field would only end up destroying the crop. And there's not going to be an opportunity to replant the field or anything like that this late in the growing season. The farmer realizes this. He understands that if there's going to be any harvest at all, then the separation needs to happen at the end of the growing season, not in the middle of it. So in verses 29 to 30, he tells his servants to leave the weeds in the field. They should remain until the harvest. And then at the end of the harvest, once the wheat has been fully developed, and once it's easy to tell the difference between the wheat and the darnel, then they should separate the one from the other. Oddly enough, the farmer actually tells the slaves to gather the weeds first and destroy them by setting them on fire, and then to gather the wheat into his barn. And then that's it. That's the end of the parable. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like this. It is like this farmer with the sabotaged crop. And just as he did with the parable of the sower, Jesus leaves it at that. He doesn't give any sort of explanation about this parable to the crowds. He doesn't tell them what this parable illustrates, what truth it explains. He just says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. This is the kingdom of heaven. It's like a farmer who, whose field has been sabotaged by an enemy. And then he goes on and explains the parable, and then he leaves at that. That's the parable. Now, if this is all that you had to go on, this parable could be pretty confusing. I mean, if someone is listening to Jesus in faith, believing that He is God's Messiah, and if they're aware that Jesus is responding to uh, the blasphemy of the Spirit back in chapter 12, then they can probably figure out that Jesus is in some way addressing Israel's rejection of His kingdom. In particular, they could probably figure out that Jesus is in some way saying that the kingdom has been sabotaged by an enemy. And if the person had been around to hear the preaching of John the Baptist, as the disciples probably were, then maybe they could figure out that there is some reference to judgment going on here in this parable. After all, you'll remember that John said back in Matthew 3 that when the kingdom came, God would cut down every tree that didn't bear fruit and throw it into the fire. John even said that that his winnowing fork is in his hand and and that he would, quote, clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There are some similarities between those statements by John and the end of this parable, which might lead the astute listener to determine that Jesus is talking about some kind of judgment in this parable. But at the same time, the exact meaning of the parable, that would be unclear. Obviously, there's this focus on the dialogue at the end. That's where Jesus spends most of his time in the parable. But, but who or what is this parable talking about? What are the objects behind the symbolism of this parable. It's practically impossible to figure out without some kind of help. Jesus provides that help starting in verse 36. Jesus withdraws from the crowds once again. He returns back to the house in which he had this confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees over the blasphemy of the Spirit in chapter 12. 
So he returns to the scene of the crime, so to speak. He goes back to the place where Israel's leaders express their hardened rejection of his message. And while he's there, the disciples pull him aside and say to him, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. These are faithful men. These are men who are responsive to Jesus' message. But even they aren't entirely sure what the meaning of this parable is. So they ask Jesus what it means. Now if you notice, the disciples aren't completely ignorant as to the meaning of this parable. They actually call it the parable of the weeds of the field. In other words, they're able to perceive that the focus of the parable, the point, is centered around the weeds of the field. And this assumption is going to be confirmed by Jesus' response. The weeds are the point of the parable. The disciples can perceive that. They can see that this is the point. But they're still not quite sure what the parable is saying about the weeds. And so they ask Jesus, and Jesus answers their question beginning in verse 37. Jesus' answer can be broken down into two basic parts. First, he provides a brief glossary of the elements involved in the parable. He explains that the farmer, in this instance, is the Son of Man. And that's not an insignificant term. The Son of Man is a figure who, as we read in Daniel 7 when we began today, he's a figure who is presented before God and is given, quote, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. According to that passage in Daniel 7, quote, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. According to Daniel 7, the Son of Man is the one who will rule over the entire earth on God's behalf. In a word, he is the Messiah. He is the one who will establish the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, of course, regularly uses this term to refer to himself. It it is really his title of choice throughout the Gospels. So when Jesus speaks of the sower being the Son of Man, he is speaking of himself, but he is speaking of himself as the one who was sent by God to establish God's kingdom. He goes out to sow. And in doing this, he sets out to plant the seeds that will one day bear fruit in God's kingdom. Now, what's notable about this point is that Jesus is already indicating that the kingdom of heaven is not going to happen immediately. That was the common expectation in Israel. As I mentioned just a few minutes ago, even John the Baptist thought once Jesus had come that the kingdom wasn't going to be far behind. And he wasn't alone in this thinking. That was what everyone in Israel believed about the kingdom. The Old Testament clearly taught that the Messiah would be sent to establish the reign of God on the earth. So everyone assumed that if the Messiah had come, then clearly it was for one purpose, and that was to inaugurate the kingdom of God. This meant that once he had come, it could really only be a matter of time, and a short matter of time at that, before he established that kingdom. The disciples would have been the same way. They would have thought that same thing too. Well, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, and then he talks about the Son of Man going out to sow seed, he's indicating that this is not going to be immediate. You sow seed, and then you wait. It has to grow into a plant before it's ready for the harvest. If the kingdom of heaven is like this, then it means that there's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is going to be a slow development. It's not going to be immediate. 
Now, Jesus is going to expand on this point in greater detail with the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven in verses 31 to 35 next week. But the slowness of this uh, kingdom, that concept is evident even here in the parable of the weeds. What does this parable tell us about the kingdom of heaven? It tells us that the kingdom happens slowly. But this isn't the focus here. This parable isn't about the slowness of the kingdom per se. The slowness of the kingdom's growth is just a characteristic that provides the conditions necessary for what is the point of the parable, which is the weeds. Jesus continues this glossary in verse 38. He explains that the field represents the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So whereas the seed in the parable of the sower was a message... It was the word of the kingdom. Here, that seed is people. The good seed represents the sons of the kingdom. These are believers. These are those who are scattered across the world by Jesus in order to grow and expand his kingdom. The bad seeds represent the sons of the evil one. These are unbelievers who are scattered across the world by Satan to counteract and attack the kingdom's growth. The field is the world. Pay attention here. It isn't uncommon to hear that the field here represents the church. And the picture we have in this parable is of true and counterfeit believers growing side by side in the church until the end of the age. That's not the picture here. Jesus says that the field is the world. And the picture is of the one seed being scattered across the earth for the advancement of the kingdom and the other seed being sowed amongst this seed in order to hinder its development and stunt its growth. At the beginning of verse 39, Jesus states that the enemy in this parable is the devil. He is the one who is opposed to Christ, and according to this parable, he raises up enemies to attack the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. He is actively working against Christ and his kingdom. That is the enemy in this parable. In the second half of verse 39, Jesus explains that the harvest represents the end of the age. And the reapers represent the angels. Now, now Jesus is playing on a rich tradition of Old Testament theology with his statement. Ever since Israel's original deportation from Jerusalem under the Babylonians, the nation had been scattered across the nations of the earth. Well, the Old Testament taught that one day God would gather together his people Israel and place them back into their land. For example, God promises this in Ezekiel 11, verses 17 to 21. Ezekiel 11. He says, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their heads, declares the Lord God. And there are many other passages like this throughout the Old Testament that speak of this ingathering of Israel at the establishment of the kingdom. Jesus is playing on that concept here when he speaks of the angels going out and gathering in the sons of the kingdom. In fact, if you're paying real close attention... Uh, as I read that last passage from Ezekiel, then you would have noticed that in that passage, God speaks of removing, quote, all the detestable things and all abominations from the people of Israel where they were gathered together. This too is something that the Old Testament repeatedly taught Israel to expect at the establishment of the kingdom. 
Well, this parallels what Jesus says in verse 41 when he says that during the harvest, the angels will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. This is what Jesus is alluding to when he speaks to the angels and the harvest. The end of the age is a reference to the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. This is the consummation of all things. It is the time when the Messiah will establish the kingdom of heaven. If you're familiar with what the Bible teaches about the end times, this is the beginning of Christ's millennial kingdom in particular. Jesus says that this is the harvest. This is when the harvest will happen. It is at the end of the age, this, the beginning of this millennial reign over the earth. So that's the glossary. That is the symbolic meaning of the things represented in this story. Now as to what it means, as to the secrets this parable is intending to teach, that comes in verses 40 to 43. So we can see what the parts of the story are. What is, what is the parable about? What does it reveal <clears throat> about the kingdom? We might be tempted to examine several different possibilities. For example, there's this part in verse 25 where the slaves are sleeping when the enemy sows the seed. You know, perhaps this parable is intending to teach about the need for watchfulness among Jesus' disciples. Perhaps Jesus is saying that because the slaves were not watchful, that the enemy was able to sow this harmful seed into the field. Perhaps this is Jesus telling his disciples that they need to be on the alert for false teachers and the false converts that they produce. There's also this part in verse 29 where the master tells his slaves that they should not tear up the weeds because in doing so they could rip up the weed as well. Uh, clearly this parable refers to the, 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 the uh, destruction of the wicked. Uh, perhaps it's intended to explain why Jesus is going to delay in judging the wicked. Maybe he's trying to say that the righteous and the wicked must live side by side until the end. Perhaps he's even explaining why it must be this way. There's even this idea that the darnel and the wheat appear to look the same way initially, only to be distinguished from one another once they begin to bear grain. Maybe that's the point of the parable. Maybe the idea is that believers and unbelievers are going to be nearly indistinguishable from one another at times. But if you notice, in verses 40 to 43, Jesus doesn't explain any of these aspects to the story. He doesn't deal with the sleeping men, nor does he give any sort of explanation about how the judgment of the wicked would uproot, so to speak, the righteous, though we could perhaps speculate on why that would be. He doesn't even touch on the similarity in appearance between the wheat and the darnel. And that's because none of these parts of the story are the point. The point is in verse 40, when Jesus goes on to explain this parable by saying, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. That's the point of the parable. The righteous will grow side by side with the wicked until the kingdom is established. And then the wicked will be judged as they are made to suffer eternal punishment for their sins in hell. This parable is about the timing of events. And to be more specific, it is about the timing of the destruction of the wicked. This parable explains that the kingdom will come slowly, but more specifically than that, it explains that the judgment of the wicked will come slowly. 
In fact, notice here that there are three verses devoted to the destruction of the wicked and only one verse devoted to the exaltation of the righteous. That's because this parable is about the destruction of the wicked. As the disciples observed, this is the parable of the weeds of the field. This parable explains that there is going to be this period of time after the coming of the Messiah and before the establishment of His kingdom, during which the wicked would exist side by side along with the righteous as the kingdom of heaven expanded and grew and neared its consummation. Now, we take this fact for granted today. There's nothing shocking about this concept for you and I. And the reason is because we're living in this time period. We're living in this period where the tares are growing alongside the wheat. So this isn't really shocking for us because this is all we've ever known. But make no mistake, this was an incredibly new and even startling concept for Jesus' disciples to consider. Once again, the expectation was that after the Messiah came, the kingdom would come right after that. And this included the judgment of the wicked. That was, that was supposed to come right away. After all, even, even John the Baptist said that the winnowing fork was in the Messiah's hands, right? Surely if Jesus is the Messiah, then judgment should be happening right away. That's what the disciples believed the Old Testament taught, and that's what Matthew's Jewish readers would have expected as well. But instead, Jesus says there's actually going to be this period of time after His coming, during which He would allow the unrighteous to, go, to coexist alongside His people, to coexist alongside kingdom citizens, while He waited for His kingdom to grow and begin to bear fruit. Judgment would come, but it wouldn't happen until the end of the age. And the end of the age wasn't going to be immediate. Because there was going to be this intermediate period between Jesus' coming and the inauguration of His kingdom during which the kingdom would be allowed to grow and expand alongside the wicked. This was shocking. This was unexpected. This was new. The disciples had never heard anything like this before. And when I sit back and reflect on what's going on here, I think what I find to be perhaps most striking about this passage is that Jesus apparently felt compelled to explain all of this to his disciples. And what I mean is this. If you you stop and think about the parable of the sower, then you can understand that there seems to be a reason why Jesus told that parable. And the reason was that as the disciples tried to process the significance of Israel's rejection of Jesus, they had this question on their mind. They wanted to know how this could be happening. They were confused about why Israel would reject its Messiah, and they needed some kind of explanation to make sense of all of that. And the parable of the sower did that. It explained what was going on as Jesus proclaimed His kingdom message and why certain sections of Israel were unable to accept this message. Well, if if there's any kind of consistency in the teaching of these parables, then it would seem as if a similar thing was happening with the disciples again, which prompted the telling of this parable too, only this time the question was about the, the delay in Christ's judgment. And listen closely to what I'm saying. The question was not just about the delay in Christ's kingdom. We'll get to that next week. I mean, there was a question about the delay in Christ's judgment specifically. 
The disciples are seeing the delay in the kingdom with Israel's rejection of Jesus, and it would seem that one of the questions that pops into their mind is, is, wait a second, how can this be? How can the Messiah be rejected, scorned? Isn't He supposed to come in power? If so, then how come the wicked are still here? And how can they get away with mocking the Messiah? And for that matter, how can these people blaspheme the Holy Spirit and still be standing here? How come Jesus' response to this rejection is to refuse to give signs and not to lash out at the people in a fury of righteous wrath? Jesus supplies the answer to that question in this parable. If I could put it this way, both the disciples and Matthew's readers would have had reason to doubt Jesus' messianic claims because he had not judged the wicked. In this parable, Jesus explains why this is so. It is not that he would not judge the wicked at all. It's that he would not judge them yet. Now again, what's striking in all of this, I think, is that this was even a question. I think it's striking that this was even a question that crossed the disciples' mind. Or or even supposing it hadn't happened yet, it was at least a question that Jesus anticipated the disciples would eventually ask. And so he answered it before they even got there. Point is, he found it necessary to share this information. He felt that this was information his disciples needed to know about the kingdom. Even if the time hadn't come yet, there was going to be some point at which the disciples were going to begin to ask questions about Jesus' judgment of the wicked which this parable answered. And I find this striking because I think to myself, would any of us ever even think to ask this kind of a question? On one hand, we could expect that that the disciples would have wondered about the delay in judgment because of their understanding of the Old Testament. They believed it taught immediate judgment, and Jesus wasn't doing that. That would be legitimate cause for concern. But at the same time, I have to think that there was more to this than just that as well. I tend to think, for instance, that the disciples had a sense of God's holiness that made it difficult for them to compute how the Messiah could be present and not destroy the wicked. I mean, the Old Testament predicted that as well. The Messiah would be consumed with the glory of God, and and this zeal would lead him to attack and destroy the wicked. I mean, you read Psalm 110, and the picture it gives is of the Davidic king literally chasing down fleeing enemies in order to destroy them. How then could he stand to tolerate the weed for such an extreme length of time? That doesn't compute. I tend to think as well that the disciples were that the disciples eagerly anticipated the judgment of the wicked. After all, when Jesus was not greeted by a group of Samaritans in Luke 9, James and John were all too eager to see them pay for their offense, even asking Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? They wanted to see Jesus judge the earth. But after his response to the blasphemy of the Spirit, it becomes apparent that he wasn't going to do this right away. And and that was a potential cause of concern for them. 
They wanted that day to come. And here, Jesus is telling them in this parable, you'll have to wait. And just so you know, the disciples weren't exactly wrong in their thinking. Yes, Jesus rebukes James and John over their desire to call down fire from heaven. But at the same time, understand that he still called these men to be his disciples. Meaning I tend to think that James and John are probably more correct in their thinking than we probably give them credit for. You start skimming through the scriptures and you find that God pretty consistently praises those that show this kind of zeal for his righteousness. One thinks of Phineas, who immediately picked up a spear and slew the Israelite man and the Midianite woman who came together against the express command of the Lord. God actually praised Phineas for that zeal, saying, quote, He was jealous with my jealousy among them. One thinks of David, who upon seeing Goliath come out and taunt the armies of Israel, declared, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He sees Goliath taunting Israel and seeing it as an offense against God himself. He's ready to go in and fight Goliath on his own. Understand, God said that David was a man after his own heart. And in the Old Testament, he's served as a prototype for the Messiah to come. David, by the way, was the one who wrote Psalm 110 as a psalm, as a song of celebration. And he didn't write only Psalm 10, but many other psalms that anticipated the destruction of the wicked. For example, listen to Psalm 9. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there and and, and even follow along with me. Psalm chapter 9. Let's just read this one. Let's just read the whole thing here. Psalm 9. This is... A psalm of David. It says, To the choir master, according to Muthlaban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them he perished, or has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net they have hid. Their foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God 
For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And then listen to here, listen to David. He says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. I mean, are you hearing this? This is, this is David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. I know we don't want to, to look at psalms like this. We tend to look away from these psalms. We want to skip over those parts of our Scripture and turn away. But understand, this is Scripture. You can't t- look away. This is the character of God. I mean, did, did you hear our Scripture reading today from Revelation 19 and 20? Did you hear what it said about what Christ is going to be like, what He's going to do when He returns? You know, from week to week, I get up here and preach, and as I preach, I really only have one goal in mind. That is to see you conformed into the image of Christ. I want to see you think like Christ, be like Christ. I want you to imitate Him. And I desire this because this is your calling as a Christian. God has called you out of the world to worship Him, and Jesus Christ is the perfect image of what that looks like. I I try to inform you, instruct you, encourage you, maybe even admonish you to that end. Well, today I want you to make sure that you understand this. If you're going to be like Christ, then you must hate sin. Now, this doesn't mean that you must hate the wicked. This is why I would say that Jesus rebuked James and John when they wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans in Luke 9. They possessed zeal, but it was misdirected. It was misguided. It was without love. You do not have to hate the wicked. You should not hate the wicked. In fact, you should probably regard the destruction of the wicked with incredible humility because you yourself are wicked and worthy of the judgment of God. But at the same time, you should hate sin. Like, it should make you burn when you see unrighteousness happening. And really, it should make you burn to the point that, like David, you're ready to go out and contend for the glory of God. If you're going to have the character of God, then you must be this way. Is is God a patient and merciful God? Absolutely. But He also hates sin. And He wants to see it destroyed. God God is patient towards the sinner most definitely. But understand that according to the Scriptures, this patience is actually an incredible feat. Because as much as God is patient, He also hates sin. I mean, the picture that we have in Scripture is really as, as if the bow of God's wrath is constantly aimed and stretched out, ready at any moment to destroy the wicked. And yet with incredibly great force, He is holding the strings of that bow cocked back so that He would not release those arrows and destroy them. There is this tension in God between His hatred for sin and the mercy, extends toward, the mercy He extends towards the sinner. And this is right. You go back and read Psalm 9 again and ask yourself, why does David want to see the wicked destroyed? It's because they practice injustice. They oppress and murder the afflicted. Listen, they are evil. And they do evil things that harm others and defame the glory of God. They are unjust. Their sin is an evil and it should be eliminated. We forget this sometimes, but but sin really is bad. 
It's evil. It's destructive. We should want to see sin eliminated. Like, we should be passionate about seeing it eliminated. We should be impatient for it. You should want to see it rooted up out of this planet and cast away. And and most of all, you should want to see it even ripped up out of your own heart and destroyed. So I ask you once again, what are you impatient for? Does the evil on this planet bother you? Do you have such a sense of God's holiness that you can look out at the evil on this earth and cry out with David in confusion, How long, O Lord? You have such a strong desire for a planet that has been ordered under the rule of Christ that you can shout with David, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. You've probably seen in the news where recently there's been these undercover videos released that purport to show Planned Parenthood selling parts of aborted babies to willing buyers. If you watch any of these videos, it's absolutely disgusting. It's truly horrific to watch these people speak so casually about dismembering babies in the womb so they can get their parts and and sell them to buyers. But do you know what has probably disturbed me the most as I've reflected on these videos over the past couple weeks? What disturbs me the most was to think of how long this has been going on and how little I I have done to stop it. I mean, do you realize that there have been an estimated 54 million abortions since the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade in 1973? 54 million. That's the equivalent to 15% of our nation's current population. That's nine times the number of Jews that were killed in Nazi concentration camps in World War II. Across the world, there are approximately 125,000 abortions performed every day. This is a tremendous evil taking place all around us every day. And yet, how disturbed are we by it, really? I don't know about you, but I watch those videos, and you know what I think? I think, Lord, I'm a wicked man who cares very little about the pain and suffering of others, who cares very little about the evils in this world. We should be disturbed by the evil we see in this world. And we should be able to cry out with impatience, Arise, O Lord, and execute justice in this earth. Deliver the oppressed from the hands of the wicked. We should be the type that sees the evil flourishing on this planet and like the disciples, turns to Jesus perplexed and wondering, How long? When is it going to happen? When are you going to act? Are you this way? Does evil disturb you like this? Do you share the mind of God as it relates to evil? If not, then you must repent. You must seek to see your mind transformed, to think this way, to think like God thinks in regards to evil. Of course, the only one who can make you do this is God himself. And so there's there's many different steps in this process in terms of seeking this type of transformation. We'll talk about some of that tonight, by the way. If you look in your bulletin, You can see the the second question in particular. I want to talk about this tonight when we get back together. How do we transform ourselves to think like this? 
What does it look like? What's, and that's the first question. What does it look like? What should it be? What's the right way to do this and the wrong way to do this? There's so much to talk about here. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We can't do that. We'll talk about that tonight. But the very first place to seek this repentance, the place to begin is in prayer. And so let's go ahead and do that as we close this morning. Let's close by asking God to transform our minds to be zealous for His righteousness. Let's pray.